You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. What if you turn to the scriptures, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. Then I'm going to try to find something here to set my notes on. Ecclesiastes 7. If you give me a hand, this is heavier than it looks. No, seriously, you. Yeah. That's right. By the way, when you're wearing a live microphone, never go and stand right in front of the speaker. It'll make squealing noises like that. Thanks, brother, so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, you looked at me like, you're talking to me? I'm like, yeah, I need you. I need you. Yeah, it's great. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and uh, the title of the sermon this morning is When God Doesn't Make Sense. When God Doesn't Make Sense. I wonder if you are at a place in your life and a season in your life right now where that title resonates with you, that God doesn't make sense. Things have happened. Things have come down the pipe in your life. Things have landed on your plate. Events have taken place that have you wondering, what is God doing? Where is God in this? This doesn't make sense. That's what our scripture text addresses for us today. You know, one of the many things that I love about the Bible is that sometimes it says things you're not expecting it to say. It just it says things that catch you off guard, that take you by surprise, that make you wrestle with that. Like, does, is that, am I reading this right? Is that what it says? For example, look at Ecclesiastes 7, verse 16, and notice what it says there. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. And all God's people said, huh? <laughs> what? Am I, am I reading it? Yeah, look at verse 17. Be not overly wicked. Okay, well, don't be overly wicked, but overly wicked? Should I... So it's okay to be kind of wicked, wicked sometimes, like wicked on Thursday, but good the rest of the time? Like, is that, is that what it means? Do not be overly wicked, neither be a fool. This is a puzzling statement here. What, what is this talking about? You see what I mean? Sometimes you read things in the Bible, you're like, is that, is, this is the Bible, right? And you check it to make sure. Because if you've read through the Bible, read large portions of the Bible, you know that you'll think of other passages in your mind where it says like the opposite, like, for example, oh, I don't know, like Jesus, for example, says, be perfect. Peter says, be holy. Author of Hebrews says, strive for holiness. And then you open up here, and it says, be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. So we look at this, we're like, <laughs> what, what gives? Well, I think it helps to understand the context. In fact, understanding the context is vital in Bible study. Uh, it's important to, to understand what's, what is being talked about, the context in which a verse is. And I think when we recognize the context, we find that these verses are given in response to a very troublesome problem. Something that Solomon, who I believe is the author of this book, observed time and again, an upsetting mystery that all of us encounter in one way or another. You say, well, what, what's the problem? Well, it's in verse 15. He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. In other words, I've seen it all. There is a righteous man 
who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. You see the problem? It's like I've seen it all. I've seen good, godly people die young. I've seen wicked, selfish people prosper in their wickedness and selfishness. You know, Billy Joel used to sing, only the good die young. Well, I don't know about the only part, but it's true that many good people die young. December 5th, 2013, 33-year-old Ronnie Smith was jogging near the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya, when a jeep pulled up beside him and a gunman reached through the window and opened fire and riddled his body with bullets. He was soon after pronounced dead at a hospital, leaving behind his wife of 10 years and his little boy. Now, Smith was not only innocent in this situation, but he was in Libya working as a teacher, pouring into young people, and he was there ultimately for the sake of the gospel, serving God in answer to a call in his life to missions. So you read Ecclesiastes when it says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. You say, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. A while back I read another story about a middle-aged missionary couple who were called to serve God in Central America and soon after the entire family moved there and began their work, the husband was diagnosed with cancer and soon after he died. We see it again. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. It's not just missionaries that have these kinds of things happen. There's countless others as well. People you know about, people you know of. It's probably come into even in your own family, many of you, even in your own household. Good, godly people that either die before their time or suffer calamity or tragedy, and we step back from it, and we see it, and we look to God, and we say, what gives? What gives? Because sometimes the truth is, God doesn't make sense from our perspective. And this is the issue that the author is dealing with. He writes verses 16 and 17. He's he's wrestling with the the thought of how do we deal with this? He's trying to, and and that's what he's trying to answer. But he says here something we're not expecting to hear. It looks at first blush, he's saying, don't worry too much about righteousness. And, you know, it's okay to be bad, just don't be too bad. That's not what he's saying. I do not believe for a moment, actually, that's actually what he means. Rather, what I believe he's doing here is he's correcting or cautioning us against two very common mistakes that people make when we feel like God is not making sense. There's two common pitfalls that that we fall into. Two common errors that we find ourselves in that's revealed in situations where God doesn't seem to make sense. So what are those mistakes, and how do we respond? That, that's what's going on here, I believe, in this text. Now, the message here has got three parts to it. First part, we're going to see there's a troubling observation. That'll be brief. Second, there's important words of caution. And then third, a bottom line conviction. And that's the part you're going to really want to be dialed in for, because that's the, okay, what do I do now, but we're going to start here with this troubling observation. Not that there's parts of the sermon I don't want you to listen to. You understand what I'm saying. A troubling observation. What's the troubling observation? It's verse 15. Righteous people perish in their righteousness. Wicked people prolong their life in their wickedness. Troubling observation. Things happen in this life that don't make sense. 
Have you observed that? There's things that just don't make sense. And it's not long before you realize that as you're wrestling with the things in life that don't make sense, that you actually come down to this, this challenge of God not making sense. Because you believe in God, you believe in this God who's all-powerful and all-wise and is real. That, that's, for many of you, that's, that's a core conviction in your life. But you see things that don't make sense, and then it's not long before it's like, you know what the real issue here is? God, you don't make sense. And that can be a painful place to be in. In our eyes, from our vantage point, there's times when God allows things, and if I've got my theology right, God ordains things that are painful, that are hard to take. Now, the author has, just before our passage, affirmed the godness of God, the sovereignty of God, that he is over all things. Verse 14, he says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. So there's good days, be joyful in those days. Remember, God gave you those days. But there's bad days too. Consider this, the same God that gave you the good days is also the same God that's given you the bad days. What's the point? There is a God who is over all these things and is in full control of all these things. And in one sense, we're going to find at the end of the sermon that there's huge comfort in that. But there is sometimes a real troublingness about that. Because we have in our minds that this is not the way it should be. The righteous should find peace and prosperity and security and safety. They shouldn't be riddled with bullets or cancer. It's a troubling observation. Things happen in this life that don't make sense. Sometimes God doesn't make sense. It troubles us when good people suffer. But here's the thing. It can also reveal in us faulty beliefs that we have about God. When we find ourselves in situations in life that don't make sense, when we find ourselves wrestling with God through challenging times and losses and disappointments, those are times when our beliefs about God can really be exposed. And sometimes we find that we believe things about God and what he's like and how he works in this world that aren't actually true, that aren't actually biblical. And I think in our strange what are you talking about verses in verses 16 and 17? I think what he's doing here is he's giving us words of warning and caution that will spare us a lot of misery. He warns us and cautions us about two faulty ways of thinking and believing about God that are very common, that commonly emerge when we're in difficult times. I'm going to give them to you and then I'm going to unpack them, okay? So first, the first word of warning is this. Beware of seeing righteousness as currency. Beware of seeing righteousness, your righteousness, as currency. And then second, beware of seeing God's patience as leniency. So beware of seeing your righteousness as currency. Beware of seeing God's patience as leniency. Okay, what do, what do I mean by that? Let's take this one at a time. First, beware of seeing your righteousness as currency. You know what currency is? We usually talk about money, cash, right? And so when you, what do you use money? Why do you use money to put food in the fridge and a roof over you and to get the car repaired, right? So you, you have 
uh, the currency, you have the money, and you pay that, and the expectation is in paying that, you're getting something back, a service, help, a repair job, whatever it is you may be. I pay, I have currency, it's given, and now there's something that comes back to me. Some people treat righteousness as currency. I do good for God so that now he will do good for me. I pay in terms of being a good helper, a good witness. I show up at church. I share the gospel. I love my family. I helped an old lady across the street. I helped I, whatever somebody's bird flew away and I captured their bird again and got brought it back to them. I, doing good things. And see, I'm doing good things. And we have in our minds sometimes that in doing good things, now God will see that and say, oh, okay, now I will return the favor and do good to you. This is what we mean by seeing our righteousness as currency. He says, do not be overly righteous. And I think the sense there of being overly righteous, he means righteous in your own eyes. The sense here is of being righteous in a kind of self-righteousness where I see me as doing, I secure my good fortune by trying harder, doing better, doing good things. So now I've done good things and now God will do good to me. That's what he means, I believe, when he talks about being overly righteous. The, the message isn't that righteousness, you know, don't be too good of a Christian, right? Don't follow Jesus too hard. Like, don't be freakish about it. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about being righteous in our own eyes. Overly righteous is that kind of self-righteousness where I depend on my own good deeds to get God to do good for me. He said, beware of that, because that's not how God works in the world. Now, lots of people think that. Lots of people think that. And it's nothing new. It, people, we see even in antiquity, this was a common way of thinking. If you've ever read the book of Job, you see the book of Job there that Job suffered terribly. He lost his wealth, he lost his health, he lost his family, and we find him in the book of Job in abject misery and pain and sorrow, and his friends come along, and for the first little bit, they did pretty good. They just sat there and were quiet, but then they started to open their mouths, and all kinds of nonsense came out. What was the nonsense? Well, their thing was, listen, Job, it's pretty clear. You're suffering. You're in a bad spot. So, Job, what did you do? You must have done something wrong. Come on, Job. Job's like, I didn't do anything wrong. Job, haven't you suffered enough? Out with it, man. You must have done something wrong because we all know that bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. So, Job, what did you do? That was the thinking. You see in the book of Job that he was a righteous man, not sinlessly perfect, but righteous. His suffering wasn't because of his sin. His suffering was because in the sovereign plan of God, it pleased God to bring glory to himself in and through Job's life, through his sorrow. Or how about in the times of Jesus? The disciples thought this way. They, John chapter 9, they see a man who is, who is blind from birth. And you know their question? They see him and they lean over to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Who sinned there? Was it him or his parents? What's the thinking? Some bad misfortunes happened to him. He must have done something bad. Because people see righteousness as currency. I tell you, it's all around now. Lots of people think this way now. Right? Let me try this on you. What goes around comes around. Right? You've heard that. You've heard people say that. What does that mean? Right? Well, you know, you're going to be a jerk, then you're going to get what jerks deserve. You do good, you're going to get what good deserves. 
karma, baby. It's karma. You got some bad karma? It's because you've been bad. Or you've heard somebody say, oh, they had it coming to them, right? Somebody's chuckling over their nasty neighbor's misfortune. Now they had that coming to them. That's revealing. A belief about God and how he works in the world. If you're good, good things happen. You're bad, bad things happen. The only problem with that is that it's not true. It's so faulty. Three reasons why it's faulty. First of all, we are not righteous. We're not righteous. None of us. And if you're not sure about this, ask your mother. Ask your mother. Ask your spouse. Ask one of your old friends. Ask your neighbor. And when they get done laughing and wiping the tears from their eyes, you will have your answer that you're not righteous. We're not righteous. We're sinful. Second problem with this way of thinking about righteousness currency is it misunderstands the nature of serving and honoring God. Works of righteousness are deeds that we do in service of God by faith, out of love for him, not in order to curry his favor. We believe in God, we love God, we work for him, and even the works we do are through faith in him, confidence in him, who gives us the power and the desire to do it. It's all owing to him. It's not a business transaction where you do good, okay, now I'll do good to you. Third, it also overlooks the fact that all the good things that we have in our life come to us from God as a grace gift. There isn't any good thing you enjoy, you enjoy today, everything from family to a hot shower to a good breakfast to an afternoon nap. None of these things that you're going to have, have they are going to have they come to you from God because you, or you deserve it. In fact, when you read the Bible, you see we deserve the opposite of these things. God owes us nothing but justice for our treason against him. But he is merciful. And in Jesus, there is safety and security. But the reality is, is that all the good things we have in life come to us from God, not because we've been good little girls and boys, but because he's a God of grace who gives it as a gift. Paul said in 2 Timothy, those who desire to live a godly life will be pampered. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. Those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. You say, how does that make sense? Well, there's a sense in which it doesn't. But there's also a sense in which the very question reveals a faulty belief that righteousness is currency. You say, well, how do I, how do I know if I'm that way? Well, I think one way that you can detect it in yourself is that when bad things come your way and you overhear yourself reciting to God your resume, bad things happen, you're like, but God... I've served you. I've loved you. Don't don't you see what I have sacrificed in ministry to my family, to my friends, in this mission? Don't you see the good that I've done? When bad things come your way and you overhear yourself rehearsing before God your resume and your accomplishments, the thing you've done for him, that's a sign that even even without you realizing, you've begun to see your righteousness as currency. You're kind of saying to God, God, you owe me. But no, no, it's all of grace. When you overhear yourself saying things like that, reminding God of what you've done, you need to remind yourself that God is not bought. God is not manipulated. He's not conjoled by our works. He's gracious and he's merciful and he's good. And that's why we have the good things we have. 
and there's real danger here. He says, do not be overly righteous, verse 16, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Another phrase that makes you go, huh? Destroy yourself. It's interesting, the word destroy here means to be appalled or horrified. It speaks of an internal misery or anguish. So certainly there's a sense in which self-righteousness ends in destruction, but I don't think that's what he means here. I think the sense here of destroy is destroying yourself inwardly. If you go through life with a belief that your righteousness is currency, I do good, now God owes me, your faith will shatter on the rocks of reality. You'll be disillusioned, you'll be devastated when you find that bad things happen to godly people. And if you're in doubt of that, just look at Jesus. Was there anyone more righteous and godly than him? And he suffered. So he says here, verse 16, he says, why would you destroy yourself? He's saying, why would you let yourself persist in a faulty view of God that will lead you to disillusionment and disappointment? Beware. Beware of seeing your righteousness as currency. Second, beware of seeing God's patience as leniency. You know what I mean by leniency? If someone's lenient, they go easy on you, right? The, the teacher's lenient to the student who cheated on their tests when they, when they don't fail them out of the class. The, the, the police officer is, is lenient to the person they pulled over when they cut them a break in their speeding ticket or just let them go with a warning. To be lenient is you, you go easy on them. You, you, you don't hold fully, that person fully to account. The warning here is beware of seeing God's patience as leniency. I think that's what he's talking about in verse 17 when he says, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Don't be overly wicked. Don't, don't abandon yourself to wickedness. This is what some people do. Some people have a view of God, a faulty view of God, where they see righteousness as currency. And so they try the Christian thing, they try to live their life, but then their life turns out dumpy and difficult and hard, and they're disappointed and they're disillusioned with God, and so they say, well, then just forget it. Forget it. I've done my thing. I tried, and look what God did to me. So I'm done with him. I'm going over here. And there's abandoned. I'm going to live my life my way now. I'm done with the God thing. That's what he's talking about, verse 17. He's like, don't be overly wicked. Don't abandon righteousness. Don't turn and plunge yourself in rebellion against the true and living God, because that's destructive too. That's what he says here. He says, do not be overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, think of the danger we put ourselves in when we walk outside the revealed will of God. The warnings that were given in the Bible are for our good. Think about what happens in the lives of people who dabble in substances. Who Think about some of the risks that maybe even some of you are taking right now in your life disastrous potential for yourself, for your family, for your children. Think about the company you keep, the reckless patterns of behavior you find yourselves in when you drift, when you walk away from God. You're playing games with God. That's what he means. He's in warning us here. Verse 17, why should you die before your time? Beware of seeing God's patience as leniency. Do you know what's happening right now in the world? God is being patient. Patient for what? Well, Peter says he's being patient because he doesn't desire that any would perish. Listen to what he says. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. The problem is the promise is the return of Jesus in that context. He hasn't come back yet, hasn't come back yet. Yeah, well, it's not because he's slow. It's just that we see time differently. With God, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. Seems like a long time, but it's not. He says, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what's happening these days? Well, you can write right over top of today the word patience. God is being patient. He's exhibiting patience. For what? For repentance. And here's the wonderful thing. There is a God who's holy, who will judge sin. And there's a Savior who rescues us from that judgment. The Savior Jesus who died on the cross to take our wickedness, our sinfulness upon himself so we can be forgiven. And in the coming day, when Jesus returns, when judgment day arrives, we need not tremble in fear at that day, but have hope and security that's found in the forgiveness that's purchased for us by Jesus when we trust in him. What God is waiting for, the patience he's showing right now, is for you to hear that and respond to it. In fact, some of you, that may be exactly why God has got you here today. You didn't even think God bring you here today, but he brought you here today so that you could hear that today is a day of God's patience as he's giving you an opportunity to turn to Jesus and find eternal safety in him. Amen. What's going to happen someday is that there's a sense in which God's patience will run out. It will be time. And that's the implication. Look over at chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, chapter, chapter 8 and verse 11. He says, because the sentence against the, an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is set fully to do evil. See, you know what that's saying, right? I'm doing evil. Nothing bad happened to me yet. I didn't get struck with lightning. So I guess it's okay. No, no, it's not okay. Verse 12 of chapter 8, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. See, there's coming a day when judgment will come, when it will happen. For some of us, that's a hopeful thing today because we have the reminder that God will set things right it doesn't make sense now, but it will make sense. But it's also a warning. Beware of seeing God's patience as leniency. Just because it's all going good right now doesn't mean it's okay. Here's the deal. When I look at these warnings, I think this. People who have in their heads unbiblical, an unbiblical view of what God is like and how he works in this world is they're setting themselves up for severe disappointment and disillusionment. It's kind of like this. I want to show you a picture. You can put that picture up on the screen. Thanks, Daryl. This is a portrait. Does anybody know who this is? It is, here's my French, Louis de Bois de Frontenac. It's, uh, the, he was the governor general of New France, Quebec in the 17th century. Isn't he a very distinguished looking gentleman? Very, I mean, I'm no judge of handsomeness, but he looks like a handsome man to me. Looks very wise, doesn't he? Astute, distinguished. 
healthy. This is a portrait that he had uh, made of himself. And the reason he commissioned this portrait was that he was looking for a wife. And he had this portrait made to be sent back overseas across the ocean blue to France for a young lady, I'm sure he hoped, who would see this picture of this distinguished gentleman and said, ooh, I want to be married to him. And it was kind of like the ancient version of The Bachelor, kind of, right? And so he had this made and sent over and uh, to try to advertise not only his desire of a wife, but to entice a woman to come across the ocean and to marry him. Um, there's one problem with this portrait, and that is that that man is not Frontenac. Oh, he said it was, but it's not him. No, the real Frontenac was morbidly obese, jaundiced, bald, rattled, racked with gout, and he had no teeth. Handsome little man, wasn't he? Handsome man. Now, I'm not being, I'm no judgment. We all run into health issues. We all got different things going on. All I'm saying is that this ain't real. And can you imagine the girl who came across the ocean blue and wandered into the ancient Quebec city and was introduced to her groom-to-be? Can you imagine? I can just imagine some, a little bit of disappointment, some shock, some disillusionment, some sorrow. Here's where I'm going with this. If you and I have an unbiblical understanding of how things should go, of what God is like, and how he works in the world, the realities of this world will seem incredibly ugly. And we will be disillusioned. Like when illness comes your way, failure, betrayal, job loss, injustice, death, what you need in that moment is a true view of God because a faulty view of God will shatter your faith. But if you got a true view of him, of who he is and what he's like and what his promises are and how he works in the world, then you will not be shaken. You will be sorrowful. You will, be, you will weep tears, but you will not be shaken because you will know the true God as he is and not be caught off guard by, what are you doing? You'll know he's God, he's in control. And that leads us to our bottom line conviction. Bottom line conviction, verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one, notice the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. A different translation renders it this way. It is best to take hold of one warning without letting go of the other warning for the one who fears God will follow both warnings. Why? Because we won't have a skewed view of God. We'll have a true view of him. And when you have a healthy view of God, a healthy fear of God, you recognize him for who he is and what he's like. And you'll trust him. You'll trust him. The bottom line conviction, God is God and I am not Loved ones, if you and I will have this bottom line conviction, it is a truth that will steady us through serious storms. God is God. And there's going to be days when you're going to wonder, you are wondering, some of you, God, what are you doing? And you may be longing for an answer. Sometimes I think we oversell the possibility of what an answer would do for us. I don't think it would do for us as much as we think. But what we really need is not an answer. What we really need is God. It's him. 
The three most frequent affirmations about God in the Bible are these. God is faithful. God is able. God is good. God is faithful, God is able, God is good. The Bible says lots more about God and what he's like. That's not the only three. But these are the three most frequent. Think about the, the preciousness of knowing that God is faithful. Like what he promises, he will do. What he says, you can count on as true. So you can trust him. You can take him at his word. And add to that the fact that he is able. It's one thing to make great promises about salvation for eternity and resurrection from the dead. It's one thing to make promises. It's another thing to have the power to keep those promises. I mean, that's one of my many problems. I got a lot of problems. One of my many problems is my lack of ability. I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful and to keep my word and be the, the man that God's called me to be faithful, to be true to somebody you can count on what I say is true. But one of my many problems is that my lack of ability. Because sometimes I'll say, I'll be there, I'll meet you there, but then my car won't start. Or I'll, I'll, I'll be there for you, I'll, I'll show up at, at the right time, and then I wake up sick. See, I got an ability problem. I can try to be faithful, and even that I'm not great at. But then the ability thing is another thing. But God, he doesn't have those problems. He's faithful and he's able. So when he promises you something, you can know it's true. He's reliable and he will do it. And he's also, the third thing, he is good. He's good, so his heart toward you is good, not for evil, but for good. That when you trust him, the ultimate outcome will not be for your misery, but for your joy. And we know that because we have the conviction that God is good. Able, faithful, able, good. Remember hearing Dr. Stephen Yule teaching on this a few years ago, and he used an illustration that I could just so relate to and personalize it for myself. It's like when my kids were little, we had this, in our old house, we had this landing that was, it was up off the ground at the bottom of the stairs, and there was a couple of steps down, and when they're really little, I would stand on the floor in the, the front hall of our house, and they would be up on the landing, and I would stand there, and I'd go, okay, jump, I'll catch you. And there's one of my little kids looking at me. And what they will do in the next two seconds will be dependent on their view of me in three categories. Are you faithful? You say you'll catch me. But are you going to just stand aside and not catch me? Are you able that's actually the one that's becoming more and more of a concern these days. Am I able? Not so much. Dad, are you good? Are you likely to stand aside and laugh at me as I'm hurting on the floor? If I'm faithful, able, and good, then I can trust you. And there they are. It didn't take them long. Come on, I'll catch you. They look at me, and they jump. There's a sense in which that's what we mean when we talk about having a healthy fear of God. It's an acknowledgement that God is sovereign over all things and is in control. And that's something we got to remind ourselves sometimes when it doesn't make sense. God is in control. But understand what you mean when you look at a God who is God. He is God who is faithful. He's a God who's able. He's a God who's good. And I think the call on this text is to be men, to be women who live with this conviction that God is God. 
meaning that he is my God who's faithful and able and good, and I can trust him and in the midst of situations that don't add up, that don't make sense to me. I can find peace and sufficiency and security by just resting in him. To take the words of the psalmist, he said, be still and know that he is God. I remember a number of years ago, I was on a mission trip, and this, this just sort of just really landed on me. I was on a mission trip in the summertime in the Caribbean. Uh, so it was a bit warm. It was hot. Like, we've had some hot days here lately, right? But uh, it was hot. My memory of that trip was that I sweat from the moment the plane door opened to the time we got back to Canada. The whole, the whole two weeks we were there, just dripping with sweat. And it's just relentless. Like, all day, the heat. And then all night, you try to lay. And I, I was sleeping on a couch. And uh, I, had, I had minimal uh, covering on me and, and a fan blowing on me to try, just, just to try to survive, just to try to get a nap. The only real time of relief that I discovered was really early in the morning. So I get up about 5.30 in the morning and then go outside. The, the sun's maybe just, just starting to come up. You know, it's a little bit of light out in the summer morning. You go outside and it's cool. It's like the only time of relief. I remember this one morning, I walked out there, and uh, just, you know, beautiful sunrise coming up, and there's wild donkeys around. When you're a kid from Peterborough, just seeing a donkey just standing in the yard, it's pretty cool. So I went outside just to get some, some cool air, and I came around the corner, and one of the young women on our team was there, sitting outside, facing the sunrise with her Bible open on her lap. And I came around the corner, and I realized, oh, I think I kind of walked in on something, and without missing a beat, she turned to me, and with her Bible open, she turned to me there in that solitude and looked at me, and she said, I just love to listen for the voice of the Lord in the morning. And I thought to myself at that time, that is a pretty profound thing. Here's a young woman who sees the necessity of being still and knowing that he is God. I wonder if that's what you need to do too in the midst of your disappointment, frustration, maybe even some anger sorrow, to be still, know that he is faithful, able, good, he's God. Loved one, can I ask you, have you learned to go to God, not just for solutions, but for solace and comfort? Have you learned to go to God not just to have your problems solved, but to find the peace that comes from knowing him? Have you learned to go to God not just to have your questions answered, but to have the assurance of knowing that you are his child and you are secure in Christ? Have you learned that? When God doesn't make sense, my pastoral appeal to you is that's exactly what we need to do. You and I are called to live by faith, not by sight. We cannot lean on our own understanding. But in the face of the crisis, the heartbreak, the disappointment, we're called to walk with a healthy fear of God, to rest in him.